All right, if you've got a Bible, if you want to open up to the Gospel according to Mark, Mark chapter 3, that's where we'll be today. I will join you in going to Mark chapter 3, which as we learned in the first service is right after Mark chapter 2. So it shouldn't be that hard to find. There we go. Mark chapter 3. Uh, we are in the middle of our, I guess, what, what will end up being a year-long look at what we're calling God's drama of redemption, the overarching story of redemption that God is telling throughout all of Scripture. And we've made our way through what is commonly referred to as the Old Testament, and now we find ourselves in the New Testament, but in particular in the first four books of the New Testament or the gospel accounts uh, that narrate the life, the ministry, and the impact of the man Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. And, and what we've seen so far as we've slowed down our look at the Bible and looking particularly at this man Jesus, what we've seen so far just in the gospel according to Mark in the first chapter is that Jesus has declared himself and he has been declared to be the long-awaited promised Messiah that God has promised his people, the long-awaited Christ. And we've seen Jesus demonstrate his authority as the Messiah, as the Christ in powerful ways. And we're going to see a few more demonstrations as the gospel account goes on. But in chapter 2, as Raymond looked at chapter 2 last week and did a great job, we've seen that Jesus in coming as the Messiah is defying every aspect of convention and expectation that the religious structure in Israel had for the Messiah. The religious structure in, in Israel had a picture of what this Messiah was going to be like. This Savior that God had promised that was coming, that they were waiting for and praying for and longing for and lived with so much anticipation of, was coming in their minds to do a few particular things. He was coming to unite all of Israel together to constitute, in a sense, a new Israel, the 12 tribes that had been scattered through, through persecution and exile, that Israel would be restored and that Roman occupation, or the occupation of the nation that was, that was occupying them at the time would be overthrown, that they would be free, and that God would establish his people to be with him forever. This is what they were looking for. And what we'll see here in Mark chapter 3 is that Jesus is again going to defy the expectation and the convention of the people. He is, in fact, establishing a new people. He is, in fact, establishing a new kingdom community, but it's not going to be the way the people were expecting it's not going to be the way the religious establishment was expecting, but it's going to be exactly what God had promised for all of time. It was going to be the exact community that God had said he was going to establish. It was just that God's people weren't able to hear what God was saying. And so in Mark chapter 3, we're going to see Jesus begin establishing what we'll call his kingdom community, what it will look like. And as we go through Mark chapter 3, hopefully we'll be able to pull out three trademarks of this kingdom community. We're going to look at it in a sense from an aerial view today, right? kind of the 50,000 foot view. What does this kingdom community look like? And in the coming weeks, we're trying to take it down to the street level as Jesus begins to teach and explain and again demonstrate what life in his kingdom community looks like on the street. What does it really look like? And this morning, we're going to look at some trademarks of it that are here in Mark chapter 3. And so as we begin, here's what I want to do. I want to let part of Mark chapter 3 set the stage for us. I want you to see the setting that Jesus is in when he's establishing this and beginning to demonstrate this. So if you've got it open, look at Mark chapter 3, and, and we'll start in verse 6. That's what we'll do. We'll start in verse 6. Here's what Mark says. The Pharisees, they went out, and they immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, talking about Jesus. And here's what they were talking about, how they were going to destroy him. 
And here's what, you got a picture, just I want you to understand who's talking here. Uh, the Herodians, this group of people, uh, these were what we might call secular, secular Israelites, secular Jews, who, who worked in the power structures of Israel, but weren't religiously um, as zealous as the Pharisees. Their religious commitment was minimal, was nominal to a degree, but they were sympathizers with Herod and the Roman occupation. That's why they were called Herodians. They sympathized with Herod. So, they, so these were Israelites who were sympathetic to the occupying government, to the occupying regime. And then you've got Pharisees. Pharisees here are representing the, the religious leaders of Israel. These were guys who, who knew the word of God, who had mastered the word of God, and who believed that through strict adherence to the word of God and the law of God and through their moral purity, God would usher in this new kingdom that he had promised and would free them from the occupation of Rome, from their occupying government. So you've got two people on completely different ends of the Israelite social spectrum here, those who, who are in league with Herod and Rome, those who are sympathetic to the occupiers, and those who are longing for the occupation to be overthrown. And the Pharisees were fierce and vocal critics of their brothers, the Herodians. They were both Israelites, but they saw them as traitors. They were sympathetic to Rome and sympathetic to Herod. But here, Jesus now has formed, in a sense, because of who he is and what he's declaring and demonstrating, he's formed an alliance between these two parties. You see the Herodians and the Pharisees now coming together. You see a, a unity and cause beginning to be established between these two groups that were fierce opponents of each other. And their unity is around trying to destroy Jesus. And what Mark's kind of painting for us here in this picture is the fact that institutional Israel, religious Israel, institutional Israel, the Herodians, they're rejecting Jesus. He's being rejected. His claims, his demonstrations, they're being rejected. But that's not the only group. Those aren't the only people that are rejecting Jesus. In chapter 3, if you skim down a little bit to verse 20, You'll see that Jesus now is even being pushed away and, in a sense, rejected by his own family. And so, in a sense, his own people, institutional Israel, Pharisees, Herodians, they're plotting to destroy him. They're rejecting him. Now, look at his family. Look at verse 20. When Jesus went home, the crowd gathered again so that they couldn't even eat, he and his disciples. But look at verse 21. When his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. His own family was thinking he was crazy. And give him the benefit of the doubt here for just a moment. And he is now demonstrating and declaring to be the very son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. How would you respond if your brother or sister that you grew up with for 30 years began saying that he was the son of God, she was the daughter of God, the long-awaited promised Messiah of God? You'd be a little suspect and a little suspicious. His own family thought he was crazy. As Jesus is demonstrating, declaring who he is, as John the Baptist was declaring who he is, we see his own family, in a sense, rejecting and pushing away that declaration of who Jesus really is. Israel is pushing him away, the Herodians, the Pharisees. His own family thinks he's nuts. But not everybody's pushing Jesus away. Not everybody's rejecting Jesus in the same sense. You look back here at verse 7 now. Verse 7 in Mark 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So the religious leaders, the institutional leaders, his family, they're pushing Jesus away, but as we'll see, there are people that are pushing in to see him. He's not being rejected by everybody. And you've got to get a picture. When Mark tells us all these places, there's something that he's wanting you to see. He's mentioning these places specifically because there's something you're supposed to understand. Places like Idumea, they were about 120 miles away from where Jesus was. 
Tyre and Sidon, about 50 miles due south. Jerusalem, Judea, across the Jordan River, over points east. People were coming from all around. People were coming from predominantly Jewish areas in Jerusalem and Judea, from predominantly Gentile areas in Tyre and Sidon, and from blended areas like Idumea. People of all Gentile and Jewish nationalities, stripes, and colors, and ethnicity were coming to see this man, Jesus. This is what Mark is wanting you to see. The religious leaders, the Herodians, the Pharisees, his family, they're pushing him away. But watch what's happening with all these people. Verse 9, Jesus, he told his disciples, have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. All these people who are coming from all these places, lest they, they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. All these people coming from all these places. Again, remember, we're going to read the Bible like a human. All these people with family members and friends and themselves who are sick. All these friends, all these family with family members who may be handicapped or paralyzed. So we learned about leprosy. All these people pressing in to come see Jesus because they've heard about him. They've heard the rumors. They've heard the stories. They're coming some 120 miles away by foot with people who might not be able to travel well with them. No planes, no trains, no automobiles. And they're getting there, and they're not just there to hear this man, to get a glimpse of him. They're pressing in to touch him. Israel's pushing him away. Pharisees, Herodians, his own family pushing him away. These people gathering in just, just to touch him. Mark says they were pressing in so tight, so close, he called Peter, he called one of his friends, who knows, one of the fishermen most likely, grab a boat, let me get a boat so I can at least get away. You can imagine, even as you think about the story, Jesus is backing himself up into the water. They're, they're at the sea, they're at the lake, he's teaching, people are pressing in, he's probably backing up, his feet are probably already in the water, he's going back a little bit further, a little bit further, but it's not safe for him to go much further. People are pressing in on him, crowds from everywhere, get a boat, he's gonna, he's gonna jump in. This is what's going on here, and people are, are desperate to hear him. And they're pressing in to touch him. Verse 11 says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Mark puts all of this here to set a stage for you to see what's about to happen and how Jesus is going to again defy the conventional expectation and assumption. Those who should have known who he was. Those who should have been most clear about who Jesus was. The Pharisees, the religious leaders. They're now in league with others and trying to find a way to destroy him. But those who they were supposed to lead, the people, they're pressing in closer. Those who should have been leading them to Jesus are being left behind. Those who should have been led to Jesus now are pressing in to know who he was. Those who should have known most clearly who Jesus really was, the teachers of the word, the teachers of the law, are shown to have more deficient theology than the demons themselves who recognize Jesus for who he is. What's expected is being overturned. The assumptions are being twisted. This is what the picture that Mark is painting for what Jesus is about to do. Those who were supposed to lead God's people, those who were supposed to expose God's people to this coming Messiah, they're rejecting him and pushing him away. But God's people, the ones that he is drawing to himself, are coming in, and they're pushing in tighter and tighter and tighter. And now here in these last few verses that we're going to spend our time on, we're going to see Jesus again defy the assumption and defy the expectation that the people had for who he was and what he was going to do. He is, in fact, going to establish a new community. 
He is, in fact, going to establish a new people. Later, he'll get more specific at the end of Mark chapter 3 and say he's establishing an entire new family. But he's not going to do it the way they expected. He's not going to do it the way they assumed. And so in the next few minutes, let's see if we can look at three trademarks of this community of the king, of this kingdom community, this kingdom family that Jesus is establishing and see what we can learn about them as we do. And here's, here's my hope and my, my prayer as we go through this. As we do this, my prayer is that those of you who, who would self-identify as a follower of Christ, as a member of the family of God, the kingdom community of Jesus, my prayer is that as you see these trademarks and, and God sets these trademarks in your heart anew, that you would be restored and renewed in a new way in your joy in your gratitude for who God is and what he has done for you. And for those who are here who, who wouldn't self-identify as a Christian or as a follower of Christ, maybe skeptical about it, maybe curious about it, my prayer is that as we kind of expose some of these trademarks of what it means to be in Jesus' kingdom family, his kingdom community, that your appetite for this would be stirred. Just like your stomach, you know, it gets hunger pains and stirs around when you're hungry and you know you need to feed it, I pray that God stir your spiritual hunger for who he is and what he's done through his son and what it looks like to be part of his kingdom family, his kingdom community. So those are my hopes, my prayers. Let's jump in and see what we can get done in the time that we've got left. Uh, the first thing that we see as we begin to read is that the, com- the community of this king, the, the family of this king that Jesus is establishing is chosen solely by God's grace. It's chosen solely by God's grace. Look at it in verse 13. It says that Jesus, he went up on the mountain and he called to himself those whom he desired. He called to himself those whom he desired. For those who have been around for a while, you might remember things that sounded similar to this in the Old Testament when God was showing Israel and speaking to his people Israel about why he called them to himself. Why them of all the nations, of all the people in the world, why Israel, why them? You remember things like Deuteronomy 7 when God said, I called you not because you were better, not because you were larger, not because you were greater than other nations, but simply because I chose to set my love on you. This is what Jesus is demonstrating here in Mark chapter 3. Those who would be part of this king's community, of this king's new family, are a part of it because of God's sheer grace. Because of God's sheer grace. It has nothing to do with your own merit. There's nothing in you that deserves this. It has nothing to do with you, but it's solely because of God's grace. If you remember back in Mark chapter 1, we briefly read through the story of Jesus when when he approached Simon, Peter, and and Andrew, and James, and John, the fishermen, and he called them to himself, and he called them to follow him, and that call was solely an aspect of God's initiative. It was Jesus' own initiative to call them to himself to follow him. It was solely an act of God's grace. And here's the thing, when we, when we teach those stories, and we didn't sit on that one for very long, we, we may go back to it a little bit in the coming weeks, but we didn't talk a whole lot about Jesus calling his disciples to himself and, and teach them thoroughly, and, but usually when we do, if you've ever been around any kind of stories or teaching about Jesus calling his disciples, a lot of times, and I know I've been guilty of it in the past as well, so I, I'm guilty of this, we read those stories of Jesus calling his disciples, like Matthew, which we talked about, or, or, or the fishermen, the brothers, and we think, well, here's how we're going to teach it. Let's demonstrate the qualities that were in these men that added to Jesus' ministry here on earth. There's a reason why he picked fishermen, right? They were hard workers. They were industrious people. Fishermen in the Sea of Galilee at this time, sometimes we like to think we're just uneducated fishermen, but they weren't. We know that the Sea of Galilee was one of the primary sources of fish throughout the ancient world at the time. 
Fish from the Sea of Galilee were exported as far as Alexandria. Some of them, they only, two particular fish exist only in the Sea of Galilee, still considered to this day delicacies. These men not only had to know how to fish, they had to know how to deal with the import-export business that was going on there at the Sea of Galilee. These were wise men in various ways. And a lot of times when we teach about Jesus calling these men to him, we talk about how hardworking they were, how industrious they were, the connections they had, all the things that made them valuable assets for the ministry that Jesus is going to accomplish here on the earth. But here's the thing, as, as true as some of those things are, it misses the point entirely. The point to the whole thing of Jesus calling these men to himself or in the gospel accounts when Jesus calls the brothers to himself and the fishermen to himself and Matthew to himself, the point entirely is that he calls them in spite of themselves, not because of what they have to add to what he's doing. The whole point is that he calls them in spite of who they really are. I mean, just look real quick at the list that's here. Look at verse 16. Look at the list of characters that Jesus calls here to himself. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. And as we go through the Gospels, some of you will become more familiar with Peter. Some of you are familiar with him if you've been around church for a long time. You know that Peter's the impetuous one, the one that's always got his own agenda, the one who always knows what he thinks is best. I relate to Peter in a lot of ways. A lot of us relate to Peter in a lot of ways. But Jesus calls him to himself. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he, that he talks about Jesus. Jesus gave the name Sons of Thunder. Jesus nicknamed his own friends. Don't miss the humanity in this. Jesus gave his own friend nicknames. He nicknamed them the sons of thunder because of their behavior and their attitude. Later on in the Gospels, I don't know that we'll get to this particular story, but if you read through it, you'll see it. There's a point in time when these two brothers, the sons of thunder, are ready to call down fire and brimstone on a village that won't believe in Jesus. Just burn them. Throw it down. You did it once in Sodom. Do it now. That's these two. He calls to himself in spite of themselves, not because of that. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew. We talked about Matthew just a week or two ago. Matthew, the tax collector, the traitor to his own people, the one who had bought the rights to extort money from his own people as a tax collector. Jesus calls him to himself not because he had good business sense, not because through his business as tax collector he had a lot of connections that would benefit the ministry there on the earth. He called him to himself because, in spite of himself. And Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, Simon the religious zealot, most likely a part of a group of, of Jewish believers who were a part of a radical, well, a radical separate party that wanted to overthrow the Roman government by force. A religious zealot, a traitor to his own people, fishermen, and Judas. Judas Iscariot, who would betray him? Called not because they had anything to add to what Jesus was doing but called in spite of themselves. He chose them not because of who they were, but he chose them in spite of who they really are. And in doing that, again, Jesus is defying the expectation and the assumption of the day. In that time, teachers or, or rabbis did not choose their disciples. Disciples chose who they were going to follow. Disciples attached themselves to a teacher. They looked at someone who taught something that they were interested in or who lived a way that they wanted to learn. They attached themselves to that person. That's not the way Jesus operates. Jesus calls to himself those whom he wants. And he won't let them forget it either. There's not going to be a time when he lets them forget it. It's so important that they understand it. Later on, Jesus is going to look at them and say, you know what, you didn't choose me. Don't forget in all this. You've, you've seen a lot, you've heard a lot. You've experienced a lot. Don't forget this. You didn't choose me. 
I chose you that you might bear fruit. In his upper room time with his disciples before he goes to the cross, he's going to say a few times, don't forget this, I'm the one that chose you out of this world. It's so foundational to understand what it means to be a part of this kingdom community because it means that he chooses you not because of who you are, but in spite of who you are. Being a part of this king's family, this king's community, is due to God's magnificent grace alone. No one in this room and no one in history has ever been saved from their sin and called into this community of the king because they pursued Jesus enough. Because they had enough to offer and their pursuit was so persistent. Anyone who is in part of this kingdom family, this family that Jesus is establishing, is a part of it because he pursued you. Because it was his initiative. And it's solely due to his grace. My favorite preacher is Sinclair Ferguson. He's got this thick, rich Scottish accent. It's so fabulous. I, I would try to imitate it for you, but I, I would just embarrass myself. And, and what I'm about to say is something that he has said, and I'm thinking its power lies in the fact that he says it with that accent, but I, I'm not going to try. I'm just going to tell you what he said because I absolutely love it. This is what Sinclair Ferguson said about this. He, he said, the family of God, or what we're talking about here, this kingdom community where Jesus is king, is a community of chosen people, not choice people. It's a community of chosen people, not choice people. So foundational is this watermark, this trademark of Jesus' community. So foundational is it for you to understand that being a part of this community is due to nothing but solely God's grace alone. The Apostle Paul will come back to it, to the church in Corinth, in the the letter called 1 Corinthians, when this church family, those who have been made a part of God's kingdom family and community, are having trouble with one another. We're not living the way that they were supposed to live. Their lives are not reflecting the lifestyle of this community. They had all kinds of problems. And the Apostle Paul's going to write him a letter to try to help him out. This is what he's going to say. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul's going to say, For consider your calling, brothers. Remember? He called you to himself. Consider it, which means think about it. Sit on it for just a minute. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He just basically called you a fool. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The only room for arrogance and boasting in this particular kingdom and community is boasting in the grace of God. And here's the thing. As this begins to settle in your heart, as the grace of God that has called you to himself begins to take root in your heart and the roots begin to go down deeper and deeper and deeper into your soul, the fruit of this grace begins to show up in your life. 
and the fruit of considering your calling, taking time to consider the calling of God and the grace of God that due to nothing of your own called you to himself begins to produce the real and lasting and true fruit of humility. I mean, really, what do you have to boast in? If there was nothing about you that drew Jesus to you, that merited his grace coming from you, what is it you're so arrogant about? I mean, simply the self-righteousness that exists in the church today can be completely dealt with if we would just take time to consider our calling and really deal with what Paul is encouraging here and what Mark is explaining back in Mark chapter 3. Being a part of the kingdom family of God is due to nothing but God's grace alone. Where is there room for you to boast? And as you consider your calling, And the roots of that grace go deeper and deeper into your soul. And the fruit of humility begins to grow in your life. Along with it grows the fruit of security. Grows the fruit of assurance. It grows the fruit of of confidence. I mean, as you begin to really realize and, and really believe and really taste in your soul that God's love for you is not based upon your performance, but upon his grace, his choice, a real and lasting confidence and security begins to grow up in your soul. A security that no no amount of knowledge and no amount of wisdom and no amount of intellect can ever produce. A security that comes solely from considering the grace of God that has called you to himself. You see, when you have this security, when you have this confidence growing up in you, you have confidence in God's acceptance of you because his calling of you had nothing to do with you in the first place. He called you to himself in spite of you. Had nothing to do with you in the first place. And this is what I pray for as a parent. I mean, if you're, if you're a parent and you have kids, I mean, this is what I pray for as a parent. I want my kids to have a security and a confidence and a trust in my love that comes not from how they perform for me, not from how many great things they do, not from how they can do the dog and pony show that makes dad happy but from the relationship that we have. That confidence comes from knowing that I love them in spite of themselves. And this is what begins to grow as the grace begins to take root in our hearts. And as the reality of God's grace begins to take root and the fruit begins to be produced, that humility, that confidence begins to grow. Something else begins to happen that's a mark of this kingdom community. Not only are we called to God by his grace, but as that grace takes root, we become people that are shaped by that grace. We become shaped by it. And this is what you see right here in this, in this verse when, when, when Mark says that Jesus called them to himself, those who he wanted, so that they could be with him. That's what he said. Why? So they could be with him. I mean, what a statement. Have you ever just glanced at that statement longer than the second it took me to say it? This is what Jesus wanted. He wanted his people to be with him. I mean, this gets at the heart of what being a a part of this covenant family, this kingdom community really looks like. It looks like being with Jesus. And we're going to talk in a little while in the coming weeks about what that means in a much more detailed level. But just for a moment, I want you to step back and, again, be human with these 12 guys about what it meant to be with Jesus. I mean, what that journey looked like for them. I mean, just imagine it. Every every single day, they would be with Jesus. They'd wake up in the morning with Jesus. They'd eat breakfast with Jesus. 
They'd have lunch with Jesus. They'd take naps next to Jesus. When they got tired, they'd sit down with Jesus. They'd listen to him talk as they walk along the road, as they walk along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. They'd hear the water lapping up on the rocks. They'd hear the fishermen doing their work. They'd hear the birds flying overhead. They'd hear all the sounds. But you know how sometimes when you're with people and you're trying to understand them, there are these moments that come when everything just gets quiet. You're around a lot of noise and a lot of people, but it just slows down. They'd have these moments with Jesus, and they'd hear him. And he'd open up the Old Testament at times. And in the silence of those moments, when everything's going on around them, and that clarity came, they'd hear him unpack that word. They'd be with him when he sat and talked with people. When he would teach in the synagogues, there they were. Walking along the road, there they were. This is the one who had demonstrated and been declared to be this long-awaited son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. Some work of the Holy Spirit had already go- begun in their hearts so much so that they saw him and they were with him and they followed him. Now just imagine, if you were there, what would you pay attention to? If you're going to be with him, every single moment, if you're going to be with him, what, what would you pay attention to? I mean, think about it. He, he, he spends time with, with the woman at the well. What would you pay attention to? Define every aspect of conventional assumption and norm. When he allows uh, the women to come and, and to pour the perfume and cry on his feet, and he loves it, what, what are you paying attention to? Pay attention to everything. You're watching everything. I mean, there's no iPhones, no video recorders, no camera phones, no internet that you can go back to and say, what did he teach yesterday? I I felt like sleeping in yesterday. I didn't really want to go hear what he had to say. There's none of that there. They're following him and they're with him every day, intent on everything. How does he handle conflict? How does he handle the Pharisees? How does he answer that question? How does he deal with that person? Oh my goodness, what's he going to do in that situation? You're paying attention to everything. And this is what he wanted. He wanted them to be with him. He didn't say, you know, come to me. I'm going to call you to me so that I can point you to the place where life exists. He said, no, come to me. And later he'll explain, because I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm not going to point you to the place where you can find out what you need to know. I'm telling you to come to me. It means being with me. As I was thinking about this this week, and again, trying to just think of what it must have been like in particular for these guys that he called to himself who would walk with him all these years. Did you ever think about a night when they would lay down and they'd be going to sleep and many nights they would spend out in the open under the, under the stars and under the moon. If there was ever a moment when they finally quit talking and quit joking before bed, because and, 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 you know they did. You know they did. They're, they're humans. And they, were, they were laughing and talking. And it just got quiet. I wonder if he ever just looked up when it got really quiet you see those? That, that, that group of stars right there? I made those. Yeah. I wonder if you just ever just, you know, that was me. What it must have been like in those moments with him. But, but that's what he wanted. He wanted them to be with him. But he's already said something else that's particular about calling him and being with him. And back to the fishermen, back to Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and James, and John. In Mark chapter 1, when we read that story, he said something particular to them. He called them to himself, but he said, you're going to come to me, but you're going to follow me. 
I mean, this is an aspect of what it means to, to be a part of this kingdom family, this kingdom community. Jesus calls us to himself by his grace so that we can be with him. But to be with him means we've got to follow him. He's not calling us to a place that we can sit so that we can watch from a distance. He's calling us to himself, and when he calls us to himself, he calls us to follow him. And, and now we're going to talk again specifically in the coming weeks of what this looks like. So let's just be real simple right now. To follow somebody somewhere, right? Let's just all agree on something. It means you've got to go from one place to another place, right? Real simple. To follow somebody somewhere means you've got to leave one place to go to another place. And they're dictating where you're going and how you're getting there because you're following them, right? No, no tricks there to follow me, right? What did Jesus mean when he was looking at these men and calling them to himself and saying, following me? Follow me. Be with me. Well, literally, for the 12, it meant follow him. Come behind him. Come with him. Be with him. Where he went, they went. But that's not our case right now, right? He's not literally physically standing right here, looking at all of us, saying, come to me, follow me, and then walking out the door, and we got to go, wait a minute, hold on. We go out the door, follow, follow me means follow me, right? So we got to go out, out the door. That's not our situation right now. That was unique to these guys. So what in the world is Jesus saying to them, but saying to us in this, that he wants us to be with him and to follow him? Here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying to, to follow me, to be with me. Not around me, not near me, to be with me and to follow me. It means I have to have the primacy in everything in your life. Because to follow someone, remember, literally means you've got to leave one place and go to another place. Because you got to leave behind whatever it was that was right here, wherever you were to follow that person. So in some sense, to be with Jesus and to follow Jesus means he has to have primacy in everything in our life. It means relationships are going to be impacted. It means thoughts, intentions, desires, motivations, they're going to be impacted. Sometimes the places we live and the things we do, they're going to be impacted. But it means at root, at least, that he has to have primacy. This is the essence, at least, of what it means to be a disciple. That's the word that Mark has used so far in this gospel account. It's the word he's going to use some 40 more times in this short gospel account. At root, to be a disciple simply means that Jesus has to have primacy over everything. And we don't use this word a lot these days, this disciple word. And partly, if I'm really honest about it for myself, I don't like the word because simply it comes from the word discipline. I mean, really, to be really honest with you, I, mean, I don't like the word discipline. The older I've got, the less disciplined I want to be. I mean, you know what to be disciplined is, don't you? Or are we completely lost on that concept? You know, to discipline yourself means you set aside certain desires for grander, more nobler, or better desires, hopefully, Right? You set aside what you want right now for the sake of what it is you're trying to get to or achieve, so you discipline yourself. You know, I was playing sports. There were things that we had to do in disciplining ourselves to achieve the goal in which we were trying to achieve, and we didn't like it, but we liked the goal better. And so we would discipline ourselves, and we don't like that now. We get particular goals. It's just every year people make goals for, for their health and for their fitness, right? But every year we hope another infomercial is going to come out to tell us how we can keep what we've got but get what we want without giving up anything. We don't like discipline. I don't like discipline. But that's where this word disciple comes from. It comes from this word discipline. In a sense, being a disciple, the essence of what it means to be with Jesus and to follow Jesus, 
means to come with him and follow him and make him our highest priority. Him our greatest desire. Him our greatest good. Now he's going to spend the rest of this gospel account unpacking what that looks like. So we'll spend our time in the coming weeks unpacking what that looks like. But that's what it means. And Jesus was not saying, hey, come to me and I'm going to give you a set of rules that you've got to follow, a set of truths that you've got to know, a set of ceremonies that you've got to be in, in concert with, and then everything will be okay. No, he said, come to me. He said, follow me. And in this, we already get the picture that he's absolutely turning the whole idea upside down on its head again because being with Jesus is not simply a matter of transferring information. It's not simply about getting the information from one person to another person. He wasn't about prescribing another religious practice that people had to adhere to. No, he was calling people to himself. He was bringing them to himself. He was bringing them to a relationship. He was calling them by grace so that he could shape them. Shape them by grace. He's not saying here's the way, the truth, and the life. No. So come to me. Be with me. I, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. We're not called to believe just certain things and, and do certain things. At heart, we're called to cling to the person of Jesus with everything we have and all that we are. This is what it means to be part of this kingdom community, this community of this king. And here's what I had to think about this week. And I'll ask you this, and I know we're running close on time. I'll ask you this. I, I was struggling with my own life this week in, in, in preparing for this and thinking about the church and just thinking about the larger church as well and realizing how much of our Christianity, let's call it that, how much of our Christianity can be done without being with Jesus. I mean, the thing he says is he wants his people to be with him. He calls us by his grace. He shapes us as we're with him. But if we're honest, how much of our Christian life, our Christianity, do we live without being with Jesus? And we wonder why there's so little peace, why there's so little joy at times, why there's so little fruit, and why so few people have any interest in what was supposed to be the hope that bubbles up and wells out from us. How much of it can we do without being with him? I mean, just myself, I, I just was, again, afresh, aware of, of how easy it is for me to professionalize my Christianity because of what I do. I, I can do so many things that you expect me to do. Say things you expect me to say, be in places you expect me to be, make decisions you expect me to make, things that all fit the picture of what you have of who I am, and I can do it all without being with Jesus, without being with him at all. It's so easy for me to do it. How, how much of our, our Christian life are we doing without being with Jesus? And I, and I had to ask myself, and I, I ask you the same thing. If, if you can live this life of Christianity, if you can be in this community of this king without being with Jesus, I, I, I have to urge you to seriously consider what you call Christianity. Because this is what he's calling us to, to, to be with him. And we'll talk more about what that looks like. But it's in being with him 
as he's called us by his grace, that he shapes us by his grace. He transforms us by his grace. So much so that the way he shapes us and the way he transforms us then compels us then to live life in a particular way. This is what he's going to get at in this next little piece. It's not just that he calls us to himself. It's not just that he wants us to be with him and shapes us as we're with him. He calls us to that relationship so that that relationship then shapes the way we live our life. He's not going to call us to do particular things. He's going to call us to live a particular way because we're with him. It just comes out of being with him. And this is the last little piece I'll leave you with, and then we'll, we'll, we'll pick it all back up in the coming weeks more specifically. The, the third thing in particular about this family, this community that Jesus is establishing, one that's it's totally established and built upon his grace. The second, those who are part of the kingdom community, are shaped by his grace. And third, that community of the king is sent. There are people who are sent as ambassadors of that same grace. You look at verse 14. It says, He appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and they might send him, that he would send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Two big priorities. Two big things that are the result of having been with Jesus. And nothing to do so that you can be with Jesus. Not things you have to do so that Jesus will notice you. And not things that you have to do to get his attention, but things that happen because he's called you to himself by his grace. Things that happen because you are with him and he's shaping you by his grace and he is your supreme priority, your supreme good. Something happens because of that. What happens is you end up speaking the words of the king. You end up speaking the message of the king. And you end up acting, living in the king's name. In a sense, this is what this word apostle means. This word apostle means sent ones. So he's calling these disciples who are making him their highest priority, their highest good, these men who are following him and everything that they are, and he's calling them now apostles, sent ones, because the end result of being with Jesus is that you're sent by him speaking his word and acting in his name. Now we'll see as we go through the rest of the New Testament, there was a particular way these men served in this role. We're not all apostles like this. This was reserved for these 12 men. But there is, in a sense, when the word is also used in a general way. And Paul, who we'll often call the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians, he will call those members of Jesus' kingdom community, his kingdom family, ambassadors. He will say that God has called us to himself by his grace and given us the ministry or the responsibility of reconciliation as ambassadors. And you know what the two primary functions of an ambassador are? To speak on behalf of the one who sent you and to live on behalf of the one that sent you. So that everything you say, you're representing the one who sent you. And everything you do, you're doing it as though the one who sent you would do it. That's what a sent one does. That's what we're called to do because we've been with the king. We speak the king's words. We act and live in the king's name. Jesus is going to spend his time with these men, and we're going to have it in his word, unpacking the details of what that looks like. But here's what I want to do to kind of wrap this up. Jesus is not establishing this new people the way that Israel had expected. They were looking for some kind of political overhaul, 
some kind of one that would come in and free them from the occupation that they wanted to be free from, but they were missing the occupation that they most needed to be freed from. Jesus has come as a, from a, as a completely different one than they were expecting. And the community that he is establishing is not the one that they assumed that he would do. But he is establishing the community that God had promised. The community that would ultimately, by God's grace, change the world. This community of this king, this family of this king Jesus, is a community that's been called solely by God's grace. A community that is shaped by God's grace as they're with Jesus. And it's a community that's then sent by God's grace as his ambassadors for his glory. And so if you're here this morning and and you would self-identify as a follower of Christ or or as a member of this kingdom community, a brother or sister of Jesus in this new family that he's establishing, I want you to realize you, you didn't get there because of your skills or the family you came from or the country you came from or the job that you have, or the charm that you have, or the beauty you think you have, or your connections, or whatever else it is. You are a citizen of this kingdom because God called you to himself by his grace through his son. That's it. Period. Because of that, there's no room for you to boast in anything of yourself. There's no room for it. Consider your calling, family. What room is left for you to boast in yourself? The only room for boasting in this place is boasting in the grace of God alone. And the more you sit with that, the more you sit with this calling that is nothing but sheer grace, ah, the greater the humility God by his spirit will produce in your heart. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond as we do every week by taking communion together. I'm going to ask you to take a long look at your calling if you consider yourself a follower of Christ. Take a long look at your calling. Remember the grace of God that's called you to himself. Remember through communion the sacrifice of this king, the sacrifice of Jesus who died in your place for your sins. Consider the magnitude of the one who called you and said, come to me. Come be with me. I want you with me to follow me. Take a good long look at this gracious call of God as we take communion together. If you don't consider yourself a Christian, if you're still kind of curious about these things, glad that you're here. Here's what I'll ask you to consider. I'll ask you to consider this. God does not call his people to himself because of themselves. He calls them in spite of himself. There's nothing in you, nothing so shameful, nothing so dark, nothing so dangerous, nothing so scary to God that disqualifies you from his calling. He calls us to himself in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. And if you call yourself a Christian, a member of this family, the family of God, and you still walk on eggshells around God, you still think today he loves you, but tomorrow he doesn't. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. I read my Bible, he loves me. I didn't, he loves me not. If you still relate to him this way, take a good, hard look at the grace of God and calling you to himself this morning as we take communion. Consider the glory of God and the magnitude of the one who said, come to me, follow me. The one who looks at you and says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Jesus is establishing a new people. 
It's not the one that everybody expected, but it's the one that God had promised. And he's calling us by his grace, calling us by his grace to cling to him with all that we are. Let me pray for us this morning. It is so easy, Lord, for for me to think that I can do all the right things for you and never actually be with you. How scary it is that my heart can can be so deceived by my activities and, and by what you can observe that most people couldn't even tell that I hadn't been with you. But I just pray that in the time that we've got left that your Holy Spirit would do what only you can do and you would draw hearts to you this morning, that we would see the magnitude of your call, the, just the glory of your call, that you would call us to yourself in spite of us, that we don't have to do anything to perform for you. You simply call us to yourself, and you ask of us to repent, to turn from ourselves, to turn from our sins, and to turn to you, to cling to you with all that we are, to make you our highest good, our highest priority, to follow you wherever you would lead us, wherever you would guide us, knowing that there is no love greater than yours for us. We ask that you would do this this morning for your glory, Lord. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.